and I just wanted to personally join here and, and, and welcome uh, uh, George uh, Tamayo, our creative director from uh, Racer Studio, who I work closely with, and, and Jimmy McMillan, who's the chief diversity officer uh, for uh, Penske Entertainment. Welcome, Jimmy and George. Thank you very much, Paul. And, and thank you for joining us, uh, both of you. I've, uh, uh, I, I, again, I think I just want to say a few words before you begin, and I'll, I'll step step away. But I, I think uh, what you're working on, Jimmy, is one of the, the most important things for our sport. Um, and the audience uh, that uh, remains to uh, be attracted to racing is out there. I know this is a sport for everyone and at all levels. <laughs> And uh, I commend you for what you're doing and for what Penske Entertainment's doing. And all of us, uh, uh, you know, really look forward to a world where racing is the one sport that really sets an example of how everyone is welcome and we all compete and have a great time together uh, uh, in what I think is the greatest sport in the world. So carry on, and, and I'm looking forward to watching this, George. Uh, uh, I want to just say a few words about you. George is the creative engine of our company uh, and is the person that effectively runs our agency side, but is also a longtime contributor to Racer and Deep Experience in the, uh, mo the motorsports and, and marketing business. Uh, so gentlemen, have a great session. Thank you, Francisca and Judy. Thank Thanks, you. Paul. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Amy, welcome to the show. Thanks for uh, taking time out of your busy day to be part of it. Uh, with us. Excited to be here, George. And uh, I want to thank Paul for his words. And I think he echoes the feelings of a lot of people in the sport. Uh, that everyone that I talk to uh, has the exact same level of support and excitement and enthusiasm for what not only we're trying to do, but NASCAR and NHRA and many of the other entities have taken on this challenge. Absolutely. So as Paul mentioned, you uh, your role now is Chief Diversity Officer uh, with Penske Entertainment, IMS, uh, IndyCar, IMSP. Tell, tell us just the quick background on, on the job and how you got to this role. So actually, um, I, my role in motorsports started long ago in that I was, I was actually, a, a, I'm an avid motorcycle rider. I'm actually the president of the largest motorcycle club in, in the state. And I cool. uh, one day went to the Speedway, it's kind of sight unseen and met with Mel Harder and Paul mm -hmm. Riley, who used to work at the track, and said, can I use you guys' track for free to have a have a charity event, a motorcycle charity event? And they said, how many people are you going to have? And I said, oh, about 100 bikes. And it ended up being about 6,000, 7,000 bikes. And wow. it was a very successful charity event. But that built a relationship. And then several years later, I decided to leave the law firm I was at and go to um, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and join uh, what was then Holman and Company mm -hmm. uh, and became their senior corporate counsel. And that was on May 2nd, 2016. Fast forward and Roger buys the track uh, in January of 2020. And we really didn't know where Roger felt and where he stood on the issues of diversity. Uh, but then George Floyd uh, was murdered. Mm -hmm. And uh, Roger immediately had a conversation with Mark Miles, our CEO, who then called me. And we came in that morning and sat early in the morning and created what's called the Race for Equality and Change. I've been working on diversity issues my entire life, so it was, it was fairly easy to think about kind of the pinpoint issues that we wanted to hit. But to have someone like Roger support um, and effectuating that policy made it real and made it something that I thought was extremely obtainable. In October 2020, I was named the Chief Diversity Officer. I'm still the Senior Corporate Counsel for the track and for the series. Uh, and we've been off to the races ever since, um, to coin a phrase. 
in yeah. terms of everything that we've done across uh, this program that we've created. Outstanding. Well, um, jumping right into it, I, I, I want to look at my notes here real quickly because I want to make sure I get all these statistics right. So we just, we just as most of us know, finished a census in 2020. Um, and according to that census, the population of the U.S. is now topped 331 million people. So between this most recent census in 2020 and the last census in 2010, the share of people of color has grown from 34 to 43% currently. And the share of non-Hispanic whites has fallen to 57%, which might, I think, be the lowest ever in, in U.S. history. Um, blacks make up 12% of the population overall. So looking at those just those top line numbers, uh, very clearly the country is becoming more multiracial, more diverse. Yet we're not really seeing that representation in motorsports. Why just in your experience do you think that is? Why are we not seeing it, not just among drivers, but it's important to say that it's team personnel as well. Well, I think there's a number of issues that go beyond racing. I mean, it's not just motorsports where you don't see the, the representative levels of diversity and it's engineering jobs. It's it's law um, in my own personal uh, field of, of, of the legal legal field. Uh, you see it across the board. And, you know, those who uh, study these things will tell you there is still a direct correlation to the effects of slavery. There's still a direct correlation to the effects of segregation. There's still a direct correlation to the fact, the effects of some of the policies that were in place that kept the status quo in place in certain places. And that's hard to reverse, even when you have well-meaning people who are not racist today, people who want inclusion. You have an education gap. I tell people all the time, when COVID hit in most of your major cities, um, your school systems were not concerned about whether kids would get educated. They were concerned about whether kids would eat. In 2020, there was still a concern in Indianapolis that 30% of the kids would not would starve if the schools yeah. did not open. And that shows you the vast wealth disparity when most of those kids are kids of color. What we have to figure out now is how committed are we to resolving this issue? This is not something that you're going to snap your fingers or you're going to spend a million dollars or $10 million or $20 million and you're going to fix it. Um, it's going to take a long and diligent effort to realize that we have to get folks into the pipeline. We have to give them the skills and training that they need to match up and compete and with those who have already received that training or who were born into it or who have adopted into it for so long so that they can be comparable in terms of skills and talents that they bring to the table and then be integrated into a successful program. No one wants to be hired just because they're black or just because they were Latino. They wanna be hired because they actually deserve the job. And I can't blame our staff or I can't blame the staff of teams that say, look, if I got one person and they've been in racing for 15 years because their dad was in it and their grandfather was in it yeah. and they've always had, you know, where they were pretty much born with a wrench in their hand. I need somebody that's going to help me win today. I can't blame that person. Yeah. So somehow we've got to get it to get to a point where there are people of color, where there are women, where there are members of other communities who have that same opportunity to be born with a wrench in their hand. Yep. So I, those are Super crucial points, and I, I, I want to get to you to expound on that a little bit more um, later on. But first, 
I want to just sort of take a step back and understand your role specifically in, uh, not in motorsports as a whole, but IndyCar specifically. Part of the, the, the question I think some people are going to ask is that motorsports is a global sport. Uh, whether you're talking about an international competition like Formula One or a national championship like IndyCar or things in between. So whether it's a driver, whether it's a team owner, whether it's a mechanic, an engineer, you do get people from all over the world that participate. And so if you look at the IndyCar field as an example right now, you do have an Alex Pelode, you do have a Pato Award, you do have uh, a Elio Castro Neves and so on and so forth. So how do you distinguish a diversity program different from citizenship. So you, you are getting multiracial in a sense, at least on the driver's side, but those, but those people aren't, they're not, you know what I mean? They're, they're coming from other countries. They've got the wherewithal to be competitive drivers. How do you separate what your mission is from sort of the natural uh, uh, extension of motorsports as a global community? So there's two points that I think you raised there. One, let's let's talk about the driver issue. And I want to answer your question head on. First, we're, when we talk about diversity, we are talking about global diversity. But we recognize that for some reason, we're still talking about Willie T. Ribs as the only African-American, uh, as the first African-American qualified for the Indianapolis 500 of two African-Americans who have ever qualified for the Indianapolis 500. And it's a, yep. over a hundred year history. And that's a problem for us given yeah. the makeup of this country. Um, it's a problem for us when I know that there are young African-American and Latinos in communities across America who want to compete and participate in racing and don't even believe it is an option. And I just don't think that that's the America that we want. Now, are we interested in international drivers? Absolutely. And are we proud of our international heritage? Absolutely. And do we consider that to be a part of our diversity? Yes, but we're not diverse enough. Mm -hmm. Now, when I look at what we're trying to do, the driver piece is actually for a small segment of what we're trying to accomplish. Yep. When you look at our pit lane, our pit lane still does not look diverse enough, particularly when it comes to African-Americans, Hispanics, and women. It does not look diverse enough. And I don't think anyone can argue with that. When you compare it to NASCAR, and you look at NASCAR's pit lane, which obviously is different and has some different components because their people that go over the wall are not necessarily the people who all work on the cars back in the shop, but they look a lot more diverse, particularly from the standpoints of African-American and Latino and women and female diversity. We need to aspire to do better. Second, when you look behind the scenes, or third, when you look behind the scenes, when you're talking about marketing, when you're talking about sales and sponsorship, which we rarely talk about, in the sales and sponsorship space, where are people of color? Because I would argue that if you had women and people of color who knew how to go get $2 million or $3 million to put a sticker on a car, you wouldn't have to worry about who's driving the car because that drives who's in the car. We've got to think about where are the people in marketing? Because if we had people in marketing with a perspective of being more diverse and broader, perhaps some of, we'd have more sponsorships and more sponsorship people who are interested in our sport. Why do people go to the NFL? Why do sponsors go to the to NBA? Why do sponsors go to baseball? I would argue in some respects is because they appeal to a broader base. We need people who are thinking broader across the board. And that means having a representative um, employee base 
across motorsports, not just in the seat of the car, where we have this international diversity, not just back at the shop, but across all of the jobs that we have from chief revenue officer to CEOs to uh, the people that we have doing accounting. There's a lot of opportunity that unfortunately you see time and time again, you don't see the you don't see a representative employee base that represents America. And I think that's that's something that we can do something about. Yeah, I, I think in, you know, one of the next topics really is is you know, it's not just about multiracial, it's also about multigender or gender equality, the you know, the LBGDQ community being represented or or at least feeling like there's a place for them within our within our sport. Women make up, according to the last census, just shy of 51% of the population. And very clearly, there aren't half of half of the people that work in motorsports are not are not women. And they're probably overrepresented in roles like media relations, but super underrepresented in engineering or, or senior management levels. It's absolutely the case. But I mean, when you look at our uh, IMS IndyCar, IMS Productions, we're very proud that about 40%, 40, 40 to 45% of our staff, our full-time staff are women. Mm-hmm. It's something we're very proud of and not just our staff, our leadership. Um, my boss, Gretchen Snelling, who's been in the industry for 18 years and who I consider to be probably the best lawyer in motorsports is a woman. Um, but we can always do better across the board. And certainly in the engineering ranks, when we saw what Beth Beretta was able to do this year uh, with her team and Simona de Silvestre and all of the women that she brought together, she showed that women can be competitive uh, in the engineering space and on pit lane and in pit row and across. And she had a whole, an all woman female team that qualified for the 500. And that's in year one of her competing in the 500. That is a tremendous accomplishment for a brand new team that was pulled together uh, just for this this event and did not get to race a full season. I wondered to myself, what would Beth be able to do if she had the resources to race a full season or what would these young ladies do? And I wonder to this day when people come to me and say, I don't, I would love to become more diverse. I don't know where to find people. Well, my concept is call Beth because she seems to just have had uh, a whole team. You can't pick one of those people to work on your team. I mean, this is the mentality that I'm trying to disrupt is that we can't find people. We can't discover people. We can't train people. We can't develop people. But I just watched Beth Peretta develop people. I see what Force India is doing under Rod Reed's leadership and with what, uh, with Roger's support. But Rod has brought together a team and Force Indy that won a race uh, in New Jersey this year. First year, these young men uh, actually were part of an NXG youth motorsports program 15 years ago when it started, went to school, got motorsports degrees, um, could not get a job with a team. Four, four years yeah. ago, when I was just uh, working at the track as a lawyer, I used to have to beg for them to get tickets to get into the track. And now I see them competing uh, at a high level, being able to perform as engineers. And now teams are starting to look at them and say, I think those guys have talent. Well, they've, they've had talent all along. They just never had the opportunity. And now, you know, one of my best memories of the 500 was walking up and down Pitt and Road and seeing those young African-American men on IndyCar teams on Indy 500 race day and what it meant to them, but also what it meant to people in the stands. Because ultimately we want to show every young woman, we want to show every person of color, we want to show every person who is of LGBTQ status that this sport is for you. And the only way for them to believe that is that they actually see 
and hear and talk to someone who is in the sport succeeding in doing it. We just can't keep telling them there's an opportunity without making it clear by showing them and demonstrating to them that we've hired people and made opportunities for them. Absolutely. You know, diversity programs, and I'm not just referring to motorsports or the things that you're working on, but there, you know, there's a long history of programs, diversity programs succeeding, failing. There's there's always, it seems to me, sort of a bit of a minefield that you have to navigate with diversity programs. If you strive for proportional representation and you just start looking at numbers and percentages, it, it almost gets to a point where you get into the system of it's, it's reducing quality to make a number, right? It, it's you're, you're in because of a certain um, uh, artificial um, door opening rather than real systemic change. And I think ultimately, and correct me if I'm wrong, or I'd love to hear your, your views on this, but I think the goal with all of diversity programs isn't just to change that representative number, not to have 2.3, you know, African-Americans, 1.6, you know, Asian-Americans, 2.4 Hispanic, you know what I mean? It's like that you're not really after a ratio, you're ultimately after systemic change. So how do you view those programs? And is, is the question really, if you're looking at it at the IndyCar level, you're already too late. You have to look at it at a ground floor level, give everyone an opportunity who wants that opportunity to take it and then let the chips fall where they may in terms of who ultimately rises to the top. What are your thoughts on that? I agree. I mean, I, I strongly encourage everyone to read Lewis Hamilton's Hamilton Commission Report. Um, it, it touches on this issue spot on in terms of, the, of why uh, efforts to recruit people of color sometimes fail, even in London, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and efforts to work in some sort of situation where you're trying to get a ratio and instantly hit a ratio number, how that can, how that can ultimately fail, because if you haven't created a different culture, you bring folks in to the same culture that was toxic before, right? And so... I can get you a number. I can go out and just hire random people. Yep. But if no one believes in the abilities of those people, if no one is ready to culturally accept those folks, if you have any types of either implicit or explicit bias that exists in your organization that you haven't dealt with through training, through conversations or otherwise, then that number is going to quickly eviscerate and you're going to be right back to zero and, and, and may even be worse based on what occurred during the attempt. So that's why our program is more comprehensive. It's hiring, retention, recruitment, promotion, and cultural immersion and training. That's why it also involves MBE and WBE procurement because you spend your money on the things you care about. Mm -hmm. And so if you're not investing financially uh, in people of color and women in terms of their businesses and LGBTQ businesses, then the chances are culturally, it's not gonna show up in your hiring recruitment retention of employees. It's about pipeline initiatives and realizing that people build relationships over time. It's hard to snap your fingers and create a relationship and cultural change. And so that's why we so invested in NXG Youth Motorsports and we're getting invested in our local community pipeline programs like Riverside Soapbox Derby and other programs across different entities and places that we race that are gonna create, we hope, pipelines to develop students and develop um, our next future generation of 
of culturally diverse workforce. Yeah, it, it's about being inclusive. Um, yeah. And culturally, you have a lot of folks who have the mentality that they don't want us at the race. If I think they don't want us at the race, I'm going to think they don't want me to work there, right? So we've got to universally work as a group to figure out why is it? What is it? What experience do others have that doesn't match up with our experience? And sometimes I found it's something as simple as no one ever invited me. Mm. No one ever said come because yeah. when people come, they love it. People, yeah. of, people of color come, they love it. People, women come, they love it. They love racing. It's something we all, those of us who drive, sometimes drive fast. And so there's something about it, but if you've never been invited. And so those pieces are more important than we need five more Black people. On or, that, or on six that, more Latinos. On that point, Jimmy, how much is your sense that what we're dealing with is not necessarily uh, any kind of a direct bias, but it's this sort of almost, I'm going to call it like a, a bias of ignorance, like that, that people just think, well, what do you mean you can't come in here? Or what do you mean you think you're not, you know, welcome here? Of course, you're welcome here. But the perception perhaps that we give off or how people on the other side perceive it is, is off, even though people internally are kind of like, I don't understand why people think that they can't come here. What, how do you how do you view that? Well, I think historically, there's evidence that at one point in time, um, African-American racers, African-American drivers uh, were not competing with uh, traditional white um, series. And if you, if you watch Willie T. Ribs' uh, documentary that's on Netflix, that's actual explicit evidence of the challenges that he faced as one of the top drivers in the world competing in the sport. Um, and, and if it's, and his stories are not isolated. You hear those stories over and over again from African-Americans who tried to compete in the sport. We know what the world was like and what America was like in the 60s. It was not yeah. necessarily, especially particularly um, in the Midwest and in the South. Those were real. And, and when your parents and grandparents tell you don't go over there or don't go to that, they don't want you over there. And they give you the story of somebody who died. You typically listen to that story or, or, or do it in your own peril. Yeah. Right. So we know that happened. But then today, I think what you see is you see people who um, don't realize that the track experience has to be an experience for all. Right. So maybe there's a lot of country music. A lot of country music. And maybe that could be a little bit more diverse. Maybe the food selection choices could be a little bit more diverse. Maybe some of the wording and some of the, the insinuations and some of the things that are said and how they're said and how they're done could be a little bit more diverse. Maybe the personalities could be a lot more diverse. All of those cultural kind of create creations when brought onto an event will make people feel welcome and inclusive, whether it's the picture of the person on the ticket, whether it's how products are marketed, the way merchandise looks, all of those things say either A, this is for you, or B, it's not. And I think for a while, racing has been very protective of trying to keep its what's called core fan base. Yeah. And if you ask someone who's gonna know, what is the core fan base of, of motorsports? What has been the core fan base of motorsports? The answer is not necessarily supportive of what we're talking about today. 
Right. Now we're trying to change that to what do we want the core fan base of motorsports to be in 10 years? Because the statistics you started with, George, are the statistics financially we all should be concerned about. By virtue of genetics, we're, one day we're not even going to have this conversation because, George, your great grandkids are going to be some mixture of black, Latino, yeah. white. Mine are going to be black, Latino, white. And I, I believe, you know, 15, 20, 30 years from now, because of genetics, we, we won't need to even have this conversation yep. because we'll all understand. That's yep. where we have to be, but we have to be preparing for that today. We can't be using a model that was built in the 1940s and 50s and 60s for having events. We've got to start thinking about what's the model that's gonna be inviting and welcoming for all. And that may mean changing the look, the feel and the drive of all of our events at all of our tracks right. beyond just getting rid of the Confederate flag. That's, yeah. that's a given. Yeah, so I, I think we only have a, a minute or two left, but final final question. This isn't really just about political correctness. This this is also, there's a real economic survival position about this conversation that we're having. Can you just in the minute or two we have left sort of put context to why we're doing this? We're not just doing this so that we can quote unquote look better, but we are also we, we have to be doing it to some degree so that we can sort of continue to survive culturally as and and, and as a sport, um, just not only in the U.S. but worldwide. I mean, the world is a diverse place. You have you have women who own who are CEOs of companies, uh, and I wonder what they think when we come to them and ask them for marketing dollars and marketing support and sponsorship. I wonder what people of color who are rising up the ranks in, in different organizations, what do they think? What do LGBT, members of LGBTQ community who own businesses think when we come to them and ask them to serve as sponsors within our sport, which is actually one of the most expensive sports to operate from a, from a financial standpoint. We need to be prepared to have something to offer to everyone who's at the table and to be able to say, our market, our sport is branded to reach out as far and wide as possible so that we can financially reap the benefits. Yeah. Everyone has the opportunity to contribute, but they're only gonna contribute to things that benefit them and that really speak to them from their heart and soul and from their position. And so we've got to do what we can to make that happen. And I'm proud to be a part of that. Absolutely, I, I think it's important to remember that everybody buys cars, everybody drinks soda or drinks beer, or everybody goes, you know, shopping for clothes. It's, it's, it's as, as a sport that, that thrives on sponsorship dollars, those products are sold to everybody, not just sold to one, one particular group of people. Jimmy, thank you so much for your time. It's been super enlightening. It's, it's a huge topic that certainly is, deserves more than the, the 30 minutes that we got here, but every, every little bit helps. So thank you very much. Thank, Thank you, you so much, everyone. Great, great. Thanks for joining your, your energy and your passion. So thank you. The concept for ePark Trade is basically, in my opinion, there's a big hole in the internet. So the internet started many years ago, but there's never been an online business community for racers on the World Wide Web. The need for ePart Trade is actually quite obvious. Basically, people in the business of auto racing need a place online to hang out and get their problems solved. It's extremely simple for a buyer or for a supplier to interact on the platform. The first thing you need to do is sign in. 
which is free. And the second thing is when you see a product that you're interested in, all you need to do is click on request more information. If it's a company, you click on request more information and then from there it is forwarded directly to the buyer or to the supplier. You can go to epartrade.com, you become part of a community of businesses in racing and it makes uh, sourcing products much easier than just on the internet or using Google. At ePartrade, there is no e-commerce. It's literally a connection just like at a trade show. So now, any time of the year, a buyer could reach out to a supplier through an email. More than that, it's a place to go just to keep current every day. So it's a good place to start your workday in your racing business or in your offices of your professional race team. And you know you're current when it comes to new technology, industry news, technical papers, technical videos, all that and more. We're not looking for a million hits per day. All we want is people who are really the volume buyers of racing products in the racing industry to be part of the little world of ePart Trade. We have racing businesses participating from around the world. So you get suppliers from around the world, you get buyers from around the world. ePart Trade really eliminates having to travel, closing down your shop. Now you have a place to showcase globally your racing product and technology. There are two types of people, racers and everyone else. Racer Magazine is for those who believe that racing is a way of life. Racer embodies the excellence that defines a sport driven by passion, courage, and ingenuity. Get one year of both Racer's print and digital edition for only $39 with instant access to our entire digital issue archive. Subscribe now at info.racer.com.